Welcome to Sticky, the podcast that helps you build a must-subscribe, must-read newsletter through actionable case studies and playbooks. Today's guest is Cedric Chin. Cedric writes Common Cog, a prolific blog about business expertise where he dives deep into both academic literature and the practices of experts in their fields. I had the joy of getting to know Cedric over COVID. He first DM'd me to chat about marketing, which led to an hours-long Zoom call, which led to an hours-long walk, and we've been friends ever since. In this episode, I chat with Cedric about making content go viral. The big takeaway from this episode is the concept of earned secrets. This is a juicy, actionable secret you can only get from being neck deep in an area of expertise. The best earned secrets, like any secret, is super shareable, and that's a big part of why content goes viral. There are so many armchair experts these days spouting business platitudes, but Cedric writes from his experience managing a software company in Vietnam and isn't afraid to read thousand-page tomes or spend months interviewing leaders to bring you the best, most actionable advice on business expertise. We dig into all that and more on today's episode, so let's get to it. Hey Cedric, so glad to chat with you. Uh, I'm very, very happy to be here and I'm very excited to talk about some of the topics and questions that you have because I rarely get the opportunity to nerd out about some of these things. Um, sort of like the meta take on uh, how do you produce good content? How do you write a good newsletter? These are things I think a lot about, but I don't write about them because that's not the topic of my website, my blog, right? So this is incredible, an incredible opportunity and I can't wait to talk about it. So let's kick things off by talking about what exactly Common Cog is. I know it's a blog and it has paid subscriptions. Can you tell us more? Oh, uh, yeah, that's that's easy. Uh, Common Cog is a blog um, and it's, it used to be about career, better career decision making. So I used to talk a lot about how do you think about your career and stuff like that. Um, and originally I started it as a sandbox for uh, learning how to do content marketing. But eventually I began to use it as a way to sort of interpret my business experiences. And I think you've sort of alluded to it. I went to Vietnam and I helped run this, uh, the engineering office for the Singaporean company. Um, and we were exposed to very savvy business people in the, in the region. Um, these people were not educated. They were incredibly good at business. They would run circles around us. And over time, the blog eventually became more and more about how do you get good at business? Like, how did these people get good at business? They don't have formal education. They, they don't even know what an MBA is probably, or like the inside of an MBA course, right? Um, but they were really good at business, better than my boss, better than me. Uh, and so what is it exactly does it mean to be good at business and what exactly does it mean to get good at the expertise of business? And so what the blog is right now, it's, it's very much an exploration of business expertise, right? It's two major components, which is how do you get good at business and what does that mean? But also what does the science and practice say of accelerating expertise um, and that, I think, is something that we've bonded over quite a lot because, you know, you think a lot about business and we also, due to our shared experiences, not shared experiences, you have sport experiences, I have, uh, I'm, I've experienced in a different sport. Um, I do judo, you do ultimate very, very, uh, probably at a, actually at a level much higher than, than me. Um, and we think a lot about expertise development like and, and how does that apply to our business careers, our business lives. So that's, I think, why we get along so well, why we always have things to talk about. Um, and very much Common Cog is just like that, like with the DAO turned to 11, uh, because I have, I have no word limit and my essays can go very long and I can like spend a month digging into like, here's what <laughs> we currently know about this particular aspect of expertise acceleration or this particular aspect of business. And here are all my doubts and here's like, here are the ideas. And then usually six months later, I come up back and say, oh, I've actually put it into practice in this business context. And here's what happened. Here's what I found out. Here's what's difficult. So very much Common Cog is, uh, uh, a friend sort of put it to me, it's like it's Harvard Business Review written by one guy uh, <laughs> with every idea vetted through and tested against reality. Nice. That's a great way to put it. And um, on the business side of things, Common Cog is a membership membership site. How does that work? Yes, it is. Um, so I stumbled into this business model purely by accident, but basically uh, sometime in 2020, I turned on the membership feature of uh, the blog 
the blog is hosted on this software called Ghost, which has this built in. And a business mentor sort of pointed out to me that the whole Substack revolution thing was going on. I had no idea what's happening, right? I was sort of like uh, stuck in the middle of the global lockdown and very depressed. And then a business mentor did a call with me and said, hey, you know, you should you, this, you, the stuff you're writing is amazing. You should consider turning on memberships. It's definitely a possible thing to do now because this is whole Substack thing that's going on uh, during the COVID pandemic. And I turned it on and uh, it took a while to figure out the right sort of gatekeeping model. Um, but eventually what I settled on was every alternate week uh, is a members-only blog post. So this week will be free and publicly available. And then I can have the next uh, post be gated for members and it alternates every week and that allows me to play interesting games where I write a series of deep dives into some set of ideas and I purposely tune the public ones to be more likely to go viral and then the mm. the the nerdy implementation practical bits um, where I go really deep uh, that tends to be the members only stuff um, so that's how I currently think about it and the blog has done well enough that I basically can live off of it and I've stopped doing much consulting work. I used to do a fair amount of consulting work. I still take on consulting projects if it is interesting and I think I can learn a lot and put a lot of ideas to practice. Um, but that has been rarer and rarer over the past couple of months. It's so cool to hear you talk talk through the membership and like how you've done the gatekeeping because it sounds so obvious and elegant. Um, but I can imagine how much effort it you know you have to go through to get to that obvious and elegant place yeah i think uh people sort of i think the, the the mistake that people think about business is that you can plan everything in advance and very much it's throwing things at the wall and looking at what sticks um but the trick of course is that you do want to throw things at the wall slightly intelligently i think all of us <laughs> know people who they just randomly flail around and, and then you sort of look at their history and you like, wow, you've not actually done much. Like you've spent a huge amount of energy mm. um, and not accomplished very much over the last five years or something like that, right? Um, and you want to... Uh, one of the early questions that I tackled in the blog and I still don't really have a good answer because this is like one of these eternal questions. It's like exactly how much flailing around uh, should mm. you do? right? Like you, you, you don't want to sort of sit and think too much, but at the same time, you don't want to take too much action and not be thoughtful about the iterations and the trial and error cycles that you do. So this is very much like consistent with everything that we've learned about business. And basically, if you spend any amount of time uh, digging into business history or listening to business stories, every innovative thing in business or thing that has been found to work has always been a trial and error process and i wouldn't say that this model is perfect as well right like i know that uh, for example i think it was chris best uh, is it chris Bass? I, the, the the ceo of substack has said that you want your best content to be free and then the gated stuff is not as good as the free content right uh because that sort of uh works with the dynamics of newsletters which is that you want to grow the readership of the newsletter as much as possible and the gating part is just sort of like a there is content stuff there. It's not the best, uh, but it is valuable. And so that's the way he thinks about it. And I, I've been chewing on that sort of observation for a bit. Uh, I'm not sure how to think about it. Yeah, I think I think your your way of doing it where the actionable stuff, you know, the level deeper is behind the paywall makes a lot of sense because, you know, 99% of the people are not going to take action. They're not going to care. They're just going to read it and be like, oh, cool, viral piece. And then move on yeah. with their lives. And then the ones who are interested are exactly the kinds of people who are willing to pay. And so it makes complete sense for them to then upgrade and pay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess so. But we'll see. I probably have to continue experimenting, right? In the spirit of good business. Yeah. So speaking about viral, that's kind of the main thing that we are going to talk about today, which is... Um, how do you write... So so the types of articles that you write are typically thought leadership articles. Um, you know, you go deep on a specific topic and you talk about what experts in the field are doing, what the, the literature is, is saying. Um, and, you know, it's the kind of article that you literally cannot get anywhere else unless you're willing to read the dry academic literature or you happen to randomly know top CEOs and know in the first place what questions to ask them. I want to begin by asking, um, 
you know, what thought leadership means and also what viral means. Because the those two definitions like can mean a lot of different things to different people. And so let's get on the same page um, and learn kind of right. what that means to you. So I'm going to steal the definition and frameworks from uh, this content marketing agency called Animals that's quite famous, Animals of a Z. Um, and Ryan Law is the name of the guy, uh, Law as in L-A-W. Um, and he sort of defined uh, thought leadership in a way that I thought was incredibly concise and incredibly accurate. And that's, it's basically thought leadership is any content that has an urn, that shares an urn secret. So it is something that you have to figure out by going out into the world or and doing some kind of work to get at that secret, right? Uh, it could be a viewpoint, it could be a set of experiences that you have to go in and, and do, um, or it could be like some knowledge that only exists in the heads of people who are experts. Um, and he, he gives a, a, a slightly more sort of rigid framework, right? He said like that there are basically four sorts of uh, major types of thought leadership. And I don't fully agree. I think that, that there are more flavors to it, uh, but I think it's a good starting point. So let's talk about them first, right? Four big ideas for thought leadership. Thought leadership is sharing an earned secret. And one is yes and, one is challenging truisms. Another one is sharing personal experiences because this truly is a, an earned secret. You can only earn certain insights about the world by going out into the world and doing things. And then the fourth one is like analyzing events, which I think should be quite self-explanatory, right? Like it's, it's an earned secret because you've taught through given who you are, the unique angle that you have on the world, and you can interpret like something that's happening and people are will pay attention to you because of who you are and the past experiences you've had. Man, I love this breakdown of thought leadership and I'm definitely going to link to it in the show notes. From what I know, the two types of thought leadership that you mainly write about is the yes and framework as well as the challenging a truism framework. Can you share a little bit more about how you use those frameworks in your articles and how that has led to you going viral. Uh, you have a yes and sort of, uh, yes, this is true. And in addition to that, here are a couple of things that you don't that people don't normally talk about. And the reason this works is because it talks about something that is popular and proven. And so people are biased to sort of like, yeah, yeah, I, I agree with it, right? Um, and then you go, and here is a few quirks or problems that you might not realize until you put it to practice. So an example of this, uh, from my own personal sort of uh, history of, of, of articles, would be putting Amazon's PR FAQ to practice. Um, and the, so the PR FAQ is an Amazon practice where if you want to launch a new product, you should write a PR FAQ uh, before you start investing resources and actually executing on the product. And they criticize at the level of the PR FAQ before they sort of like uh, argue or tell you like you should go and execute it or not. And, and as I learned from talking to various Amazonians, including Colin Breyer, who was there when the process is invented, uh, very much the, very often the iteration on the idea happens at the PR FAQ level, not at the project level. Now, PR FAQs have been around as an idea for an incredibly long time. And if you go and Google it, I think way back even in 2009 or 2010, which is when I first heard of this idea, people have been writing about this for ages because Amazon has been around for ages and people who have worked at Amazon and who have been exposed to this idea has been around for ages, right? So this is a very, at this point, if you're if you know anything about business or you read anything about business, you would probably be exposed to the idea. But how do you actually put it to practice, right? There have been remarkably few pieces out there that talk about what is the lived experience of writing a PR FAQ. And if you actually try to put it to practice, you will find that it is bloody hard. And so I, write, I wrote about this. Uh, it took me around eight months to sort of like get the PR FAQ to work for me. Um, and then I could sort of see like the limitations as well as the value of the of the process as well. And it's not very obvious uh, that you can iterate at the peer FAQ level, right? And most people who try it, right, they are so uncomfortable with being punched in the face by the peer <laughs> FAQ, right? So it's a lot of these arguments don't actually make sense. Like, oh, it only works for a big company like Amazon or it only works for startups. Like it doesn't work for startups, but like Amazon had to invent AWS from scratch, right? It's not something that that's a startup uh, origination problem that would be the same regardless of whether you're a tiny company trying to do it or whether you are a big company, right? So that's an example of a yes and article, right? And I went through that incredibly long example to sort of show you like the kind of value, why it can go viral because it's taking an idea that people are familiar with and then like really going into like, yes, and, and here are things that you've not thought about. And then that prompts people to share, right? Because it's, it's oh, do you know about this 
you know, this this angle to this thing that we all agree on and, and like. This next one is challenging truisms, right? And so the one that I wrote that went viral is uh, strong opinions weekly held doesn't really work that well. And in that particular case, you've got a popular truism that many people think is true. And then you're like, no, actually, it's not true, right? Strong opinions weekly held is often used as, as an excuse to come up with your own strong opinion and then cover your ass if it turns out to be wrong, <laughs> right? And so like, I think the alternative method of saying like, I am 60% confident in this, uh, it matches mm. the way most people's brains work. And that this is the sort of strong result that comes out of a lot of work, specifically around Philip Tetlock's, uh, who is this psychology professor. Well, he's most famous for doing forecasting tournaments and then like proving that a lot of expert political forecasters are worse than a chimpanzee throwing dots at a wall, right? Um, so the big finding there is that if you actually force yourself and everybody in your group to sort of say calibrated statements like, I'm 60% confident in, in this, right? You actually produce better thinking. Um, anyway, so that's like the second one. So I really wanted to highlight and call out what Cedric is doing here because at the start of his definition on thought leadership, he said that it was an earned secret. And basically what he's sharing with us right now is an earned secret, right? Because he talks about what thought leadership is and, you know, what the original Animals blog post talked about. But then he then goes into the earned part of the secret because he shares his experience with writing yes and articles and why they're useful and why they go viral. As compared to, you know, he could have very easily just said, I got these ideas from the Animals blog post, this is the breakdown, then moved on. And by not doing that, he really fills in the blanks for us. Instead of giving us the point form definition, we now have so much more nuance and really understand the shape around how thought leadership, yes, and articles work. And I think that's really powerful. Okay, so we're going to come circle back to all of that. But now can I get your definition on viral? I, okay, so I don't have a good definition of viral. I'm just going to describe what going viral feels like. <laughs> okay, um, cool. So so the metric that I use is usually uh, on a weekly cadence and the reason for that is because usually the article goes viral in uh, in one medium. Um, for me, a lot of it happens to be hacker news, but occasionally it goes viral, say, on um, Twitter or it goes viral on a newsletter that is very widely read, uh, particularly, I think, in the past newsletters that are very widely read with high open rates do sort of push this viral effect. And the reason, and the way that I know that it, things are going viral, not only is a visitor spike, but then I start seeing sort of mentions and uh, in mm. social media. So, and I see a spike in people sharing on Twitter, people traffic coming in from Facebook, traffic coming in from Facebook Messenger, Facebook uh, traffic coming in from LinkedIn. And this is usually a ripple effect that happens after the initial sort of like um, platform uh, share, right? Uh, so there's usually like a spike from one initial platform share and then there's a ripple effect as people then sort of like are exposed to it and then they share on various mediums. And this usually lasts three days, three to four days. And that's why I sort of, uh, when I count the impact of a viral piece, I look at the overall week because there are ripple effects. And what I found is also is that, uh, for example, on an Android phone, there usually is a page where they sort of, sort of show trending articles or links. Uh, and I find that Google somehow is able to pick that, oh, this article is actually trending right now. And then they show it on people's Android phone homepages or whatever. Oh, wow. Um, and, and there's like a, a usually an uptick in number of, you, you can tell from like the URLs, right? Because these are specific, um, I can't remember the exact shape of the, the URL now uh, because for a variety of reasons, I switched from Google Analytics recently to PostHog. Um, but you can tell like, oh, there's this like extra source of traffic which normally doesn't exist, right? It's totally random. Um, so that's what viral feels like. And Common Cock for contacts, uh, I mean, at this point, like various articles have gone viral again and again, sometimes multiple times in the same week that I'm sort of like, eh, okay, it's happening, right? Um, I put out some stats for you before this podcast. It's like, I think 16 times over the past two years, which means I average around twice a quarter. Um, and then the average traffic bump from these uh, viral spikes is like additional 16 to 25,000 sessions uh, per per viral event um, on top of the average weekly visitors that Common Call gets, which is around 4,000. And these numbers are not very large, like, especially compared to 
uh, more prominent publications. But what I really care about is the quality of the people who find the piece because mm. they tend, they're the ones who become newsletter subscribers, then they become sticky readers, and then eventually they pay for a membership. And um, I care about more, I think, than most people, I care about people who are good at business, who meet a certain bar, who are e- either tech executives or hedge fund managers, I mean, investors, or uh, consultants to these people. And they tend to make for the best members. There, there are two things that I kind of want to dig a little deeper on with regards to going viral. Um, I think I think it was Ahrefs, but it could have been something someone else mm. who talked about what going viral actually looks like. I think they like um, graphed the traffic sources or something like that. And I love the way that you use the word ripple because that's kind of um, what they saw as well. Um, Because I think like it's a common misconception from people that viral is this like one-to-one-to-one-to-one-to-one kind of um, chain reaction that spreads out over time. But actually what it is, is one-to-one-to-many. So, so, you know, a traffic source with a huge um, subscriber list or a huge audience. Correct. And then that has that ripple effect that, that you were talking about. And then that ripple effect potentially leads on to another um, source with a huge audience and on it on that way. So it's a bunch of huge, you know, stones thrown in a lake and then all the ripple effects from there rather than Correct. sand that you throw into the lake. And it's like a whole bunch of tiny dots. Yeah, I, I can give a concrete example of this, uh, which is, so there was this article that I wrote called Don't Read History for Lessons, and it went viral on Hacker News initially, and then it got picked up on Twitter, so people started sharing on Twitter, and uh, then it got picked up by Fintwit, which is the portion of Twitter that is finance professionals, hedge fund managers and stuff, and then uh, one, uh, probably the top finance podcast in the world, Invest Like the Best, featured it on their newsletter, so it was the, the, the number one link, and then from there, it went into a Bloomberg uh, newsletter, so it was like literally in the Bloomberg news I was like, wow, that's actually pretty impressive. So like cool. Bloomberg is mainstream media, right? Um, and so you can sort of see like the impact uh, being shared. Uh, and, and I'm fairly certain as well that some of the articles and links, uh, uh, links to my articles are shared on private investor chats. I'm not surprised if they're shared in private investor groups, like maybe through the Bloomberg terminal or something. I don't know. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised given the way some of these articles sort of spread through these various communities. Yeah, it's really cool to kind of see that whole chain reaction, yeah. big bombs type Very of. common. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to mention with vi- virality is, virality is subjective, right? So if you are a consumer-focused um, publication, then virality might mean millions of people. That's true. But in your case, you are not consumer-focused. So virality means like your total addressable audience is much smaller. And so you hitting 100% of your total addressable audience might actually look very different from someone who's yep. writing about food, right? Or something, some, you know, Marvel movie or something like that. And so I think, like, it's important to be contextual around virality. Um, mm, also, like, you know, if, you're, if you are um, working at a company or something like that and you have... I think this is really outdated. Like, maybe 10 years ago, this was happening. But on the off chance, it's still happening today. Um, where you have bosses who are like, oh, we want our things to go viral. And in their mind, viral equals 1 million or more wow. um, views or something like that. Like, I think it always has to be tied to who your audience is and like what the actual audience size is. Yeah, I would modify your sentence to say total addressable market for the market for your content. And the reason I'm so precise is because... Uh, Articles can go even so. I'm I'm a blog post, right? I mean, I write I write blog articles, right? And they, it's clear that the 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 average sort of range for a piece going viral is between six thousand and twenty five thousand. The reason because is that the pieces that I write are difficult to read. I mean, I try to make it entertaining, mm. and and most people will say like for the ideas that I covered, I'm usually the easiest uh, uh, piece to read, right? But it's not easy to read in a general sense, right? Um, so a more typical uh, business piece that's sort of written in a more dumb way, 
uh, with like really easy to digest ideas that are actually not very valuable, not very practitional, practic- practicable, they can go, I think, way more, maybe 100,000 views, right? Uh, and I don't, I'm not going to name names, but I think you know what some of these pieces look like. They're like, oh, like, you know, they're the, basically the article version of the Twitter thread of like, oh, 10 ways that entrepreneurs like found their <laughs> big idea, you know? It's, it's, it's really viral. It can go really viral because it's very popular. It caters to the lowest common denominator. It's the kind of content that you see uh, Twitter bros like sort of writing threads about, right? And they're completely useless, completely not practical, and but they go way more viral. It's just that the audience value is much lower because these people that, that mm. read the article aren't as valuable as actual practitioners that I care about. And so, yes, uh, there's total addressable market, but then total addressable market for the kind of content that you're writing. And the feedback that I get regularly about Common Cog is that people, even regular readers of Common Cog, they have to make time in their schedule to read Common Cog <laughs> um, because the ideas that I cover are not easy. Um, the writing is easy. It goes down easy, but the ideas are not easy. Uh, so so that's something that uh, we also have to keep in mind, I think, when we're talking about this, this topic. Yeah, that's really valuable. To me, one of the hallmarks of expertise is replicable success. And... Um, one of the things that you mentioned just now is that you've gone viral several times and it's kind of almost averaging once per quarter in the past two years. Twice per quarter, yeah. Can you share a little bit more about your most viral articles and you know which ones they were and like how do you get um, a sense of, oh, this one's going to go viral or like this kind of topic, if I write it in this kind of way, it's more likely to go viral. So I, I dug up some numbers before you came uh, up with the... I mean, when you asked me f- to prepare for this podcast, I did cu- look up some numbers, but I didn't spend the time to sort of rigorously track uh, the which article was the most viral. I, I know certain articles stayed on top of Hacker News more than most. I can't, for the life of me... Uh, remember it now and part of it is because i was not very data driven in the past but recently i've been doing a business series on becoming <laughs> data driven and i'm more data driven now so if we do a podcast in a year's time i probably will be able to give you these answers but sort of going digging into the numbers i think the most recent very viral piece that uh resulted in a bump to thirty thousand readers 30,000 30, sessions was goodhart's law is not as useful as you might think. And I think you can go there and if you go to the Common Cog front page. It's still on the front page somewhere. It's not that far long ago. right? If Goodhart's Law isn't as useful as you might think, that's the name of the article. It's a very long article, I think. Not the longest that I've ever written, but it's fairly long. And the fact that it's gone viral tells you something about the topic. And this is, if you want to slot it into Ryan Law's uh, Top Leadership Framework, this is very much sort of like tacking a, uh, what do you call it? Um, uh, it's not really yes, and it's, it's it's basically disproving a truism, right? It's basically mm-hmm. saying that hey, there's this thing called Goodhart's law, which is that uh, a very old, famous saying saying that like it, when a measure becomes a target, the measure ceases to be a good measure. And I'm sort of pointing out like, look, guys, like yeah, that may be true, but that's totally useless. Like, what can you do if you're a manager in a company trying to uh, create uh, this uh, set of incentives, right? That that that. How do you prevent Goodhart's law, right? It doesn't tell you how to do that. It just tells you that, oh, there's a thing, right? Um, and then I sort of, then sort of pull back the curtain and say that you do realize that there is a body of knowledge called statistical process control that was developed in the 30s, 1930s, right? And sort of like put into practice during World War II that has, they, they have come up with principles for how do you avoid this? And it is well known and well used in any sort of like manufacturing context, which is where SPC came from. And somehow we seem to have missed the memo right and 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 then here and these are the principles here's what it is and here is what it looks like in practice and then i go in depth into an example in um with amazon's uh, weekly business review practice which has sort of taken these principles and and really figured out how all the implications on how to apply it to a tech company right so this went massively viral um again in the ripple effect way that i i told you about uh it was a hacker news i think for a very long uh, maybe like nearly a nearly a twenty four hour period, I think, and a lot of people sort of like, holy shit, this is actually how you can do a metrics review and avoid many of the pitfalls of driving incentive driven behavior or driving a metric uh, in organization behavior. So so that's one example. There have been a couple other examples. That the, the, the traffic spikes aren't as large, 
Um, forgive me, what was the original question again? Like, you wanted me to talk <laughs> The question is some just of... kind of... Okay, so the question is, like, how do you get, get a sense of taste right. um, around <laughs> viral articles? Because there's obviously something that you know that you can consistently reproduce. You know, most okay. people, they have one viral thing in their whole life and it was, um, you know, something that they were completely not expecting and it goes viral and then, you know, that's for the rest of their lives the most viral thing that ever happened to them. Um, but for you, you're able to replicate it, you know, every other week, every month, you know, and so on. And so there's obviously something that you know. Um, and right. yeah, I'd love to kind of get a sense for how you're looking at it, how you're making things go viral. Right. Uh, I, I, so I want to call out, um, there is a dynamic here that benefits from having gone viral in the past, which is that in Hacker News, you get lots of points if you put an article that gets upvoted you know, to the front page uh, and people have this incentive. And so I think uh, for a certain group of my readers who are also Hacker News people, uh, they know that my articles are more likely to get viral than most. And so there's a race. There's always a race. Every time I publish for somebody to submit it to Hacker News because they might get all oh, the karma. <laughs> this, there's definitely this dynamic going on because like the number of times I go viral on Hacker News has just increased over the years. Like number of the, the, the frequency and the periodicity between. But so, so that's one piece, right? And I don't want to lie. Uh, when I did this, so I did consulting for a company called Holistics and I did get them to go viral a couple of times, but it took the first time you went viral on, on Hacker News specifically, but Holistics is a business intelligence software. So it is more a SaaS contacts or SaaS content marketing contacts. Um, sorry for readers who don't, who are listeners who don't uh, know SaaS is software as a service. Software as a service, content marketing contacts. It took me a year before they could go viral on Hacker News, after which it's like a dam has been broken and then it was like, within the next year, mm. uh, I think they were, it, it went viral like twice in six months or something like that. Like, um, it, it becomes more and more frequent the more and more brand perception, brand recognition that people have. And I'm certain that people do at this point are able to recognize the common call site design and the URL because eventually they start developing an, an, an association with like, oh, this is comical. It probably will be super long, but it will be worth it to read, right? Now, so that's one piece. There's this path-dependent piece that you have to be very clear when you're starting to build like this viral strategy uh, that you have to slog for a really long time and then it sort of compounds after a while. The other piece is that everything that I wrote, wrote that, that went viral does fit into Ryan Law's uh, thought leadership framework, right? So it's, it's either a yes and, or it's tackling a truism, or it's sharing personal experiences, or it's analyzing events. And I don't really do analyzing events, so I can't really talk to that. But I can talk about like um, personal experiences. Sometimes I will admit that I don't, I can't predict what goes viral. So when I went off and did a four-month deliberate practice experiment training every day to see if I can speed up my judo skill, um, which you are a part of because you are, you know, you're my one of my friends who are who is a really top-notch coach. And so I asked you for advice during that period. So you were there every part of that journey. But uh, when I wrote the piece sort of like announcing uh, that I was doing this thing, and actually it was prompted by you, you sort of pushed me to say you should go write <laughs> this piece because training is difficult and you might not be able to publish as much over the next couple of weeks in the lead up to the competition. When I published that piece, I did not expect it to go viral, but it did. And so I, as much as I, I like to take credit for um, uh being able to develop a sense for um, which pieces go viral, very often things that I don't expect to go viral go, goes viral, or things that I expect to go viral doesn't go viral. So there is an element of mystery, and it's not like a 100% hit, hit rate. But broadly speaking, the ones that where I have a very strong feeling it will go viral do eventually go viral. And that usually tends to be when the, the sense of an earned secret is incredibly powerful. So mm. it's now it's it's probably a good thing that I went into that whole tangent about the good hot's law piece because in that particular piece my sense of this is a earned secret that not many people know about people always talk about good hot's law they think that it makes them sound very intelligent like oh you know we need to be careful about misaligned incentives yeah so what if you are in a business context what are you gonna do right like I don't care that the effect exists I care about how do you solve for the effect. And everybody doesn't seem to take the extra step of like, how do we solve Goodhart's law? They just say, oh, Goodhart's law exists, which is useless, right? And so the fact that I uncovered, hey, there's actually this whole body of work, and it's not just an entire body of work, it's a, it's a body of work that's been around for like 
seven decades, and they've worked this all out, and there are multiple instantiations in multiple companies throughout history, and all of you are blind. Like, you don't even know that this exists, right? And, and Amazon mm-hmm. has figured it out. Uh, guys, right? So, so, so that was a sense that this, this is definitely going to go viral because I think this is hugely val- valuable. This really breaks apart a sense that people have of this commonly known uh, effect, the Goodhart's Law effect, and really is generally valuable and gives people a new way to think about uh, creating incentives in their companies. So that that's basically if you if you if you boil it down to that, it's when the sense of the shared secret is incredibly strong and you know it's useful and valuable. Man, I love that. I've never heard of it articulated like that before. So this itself is an earned secret <laughs> to me. So <laughs> yes, yeah, it that's is. awesome. <laughs> um does that mean that every time you write something you're trying to write from the perspective of sharing an earned secret? Uh yes. I mean that is primarily why people continue to read Common Cop even though it's difficult, even though it's hard. I've had a reader say to me that he actually makes time on the weekend to read the piece for the week because it's not easy to work through the ideas, right? Um, I want to be useful. I want to write stuff that is useful. And when you want to write stuff that is useful, very often you are forced to go into earned secrets. Because very mm. often platitudes or truisms in business, they may be true, but people don't take the time to express exactly how true it is. So it's one thing to sort of say, um, you need to prioritize in a way that... Sorry, I, I'm, I'm introducing a new idea here. I, I, I know this is going to take a bit of uh, time, but I think it's valuable. Like, for example, one of the thing that, things that every business operator learns is prioritization is important and it's not just prioritization that's important right it's um if you get one or two things the most important things really right it doesn't matter that everything else screws up in your business you will succeed and this sense right is very easy to say but very difficult to communicate in a way that's visceral um and in in a, in a way that where you work out all the implications of this in your day-to-day life it is easy to say the principle right the, the mm-hmm. fact that I just said it like this, any business operator who has run a business or run a portion of a business uh, has like responsibility for... Yeah, there'll be nothing, it. right. But then they don't yeah. actually think about how should this change the way I think about my projects or the way I think about planning my week or the way I think about firing people, right? Because there are implications mm-hmm. for all of these things. And really good business people will be able to tell you like, this is these are, it makes sense, it's common sense because if this is true, then you must do all these other things, right? Um, and so teasing that apart, making that explicit, because then I believe it's useful because most people don't actually do that sort of thinking necessary to say, oh, if this is true, then I need to change the way I approach hiring and marketing and X, Y, Z, right? They don't, they don't, they don't put in that work. Um, but then like my, the people that I admire the most my, and my business mentors tend to do the work, right? So making that explicit and translating that into the written word um, is sort of, it's useful, and it just happens to also fall into the framework for thought leadership, which is that it's an earned secret, which means it's more likely to be shared. It's more likely to go viral. You're, you're making me rethink how I approach this <laughs> podcast as well. Like, I think intuitively this was what I was trying to do, but without having the vocabulary and without having it kind of laid out for me so clearly, um, I was kind of like... This is the value of around. Cup, right? <laughs> yeah. And it actually yeah. explains why your podcast, I believe, is really good. I felt when I was listening to your podcast, and I was gushing over it, you know, over chat with, with you. Uh, for context, listeners, uh, the I published a podcast recently about Les, uh, with Leslie as the guest, and I was the host. <laughs> and we were not talking about business. We were talking about her experiences as an ultimate coach. And a lot of the insights that she had are earned secrets. A lot of the insights that you shared are earned secrets that people don't know. And people don't think as rigorously and as deeply about coaching and teaching and accelerating skill as you have, right? So, so, so that, that's why I felt um, that it was incredibly valuable. I was very, very happy with that podcast. <laughs> uh, the only problem is that the medium doesn't go viral. Podcasts don't go viral. They have very slow burn uh, sharing. I wouldn't be surprised if like over the next couple of months, uh, multiple people in the ultimate world championship scene eventually all hear the podcast. So Oh, then they'll be horrified. <laughs> <laughs> Try not to think about it. <laughs> I know because I know you, I know you you would be horrified by that, but like yeah. <laughs> 
So we've had a lot of fun diving deep into the definitions of thought leadership and going viral. So I think what we need now is a break. Cedric, I'm going to ask you a bunch of quick questions and you can answer them in one word or a sentence. So question one, Vietnam or Singapore? Ooh, oh, this is terrible. Um, <laughs> Vietnam or Singapore? Can I say both? I like the chaos of Vietnam, right? Singapore can be a bit too clean and sterile. Um, I like the freedom of going around on motorbikes in Vietnam, right? And the traffic is incredibly insane, uh, which also adds to that chaos. And that, there's something enjoyable about that. Um, but at the same time, there is some things that are nice, like the, the cleanliness of Singapore and the orderliness of Singapore. When you're doing business in Singapore, what you see really is what you get. In Vietnam, it very often is not the case that what you see is what you get. Uh, you very often meet that there's like the official way to do things. And then there's like the hidden local secret. Back channel possibly corrupted way of doing things like, <laughs> you have to be prepared for such things right but in Singapore it's like it's all like if it's all, if you can see it on a website and follow a process on a website it's likely to work exactly as the government website describes it so that's awesome and of course Singapore I'm I, Malaysian I grew up in Malaysia and Singaporean food is of course uh, awesome um, Vietnamese food is healthier still awesome really awesome but like you like what you grow up eating right so there's that yeah Alright, question two. Bubble tea or burgers? Uh, bubble tea. Because I think I like burgers a lot. and But every time I eat a burger, I'm like happy for the first few bites and then I'm sick of the burger and I don't eat burgers for a couple of weeks. Whereas bubble tea is incredibly sinful and somehow when you drink bubble tea today, you can still want to drink bubble tea tomorrow. Okay, assuming you'd be top 1% in skill level, no matter which you pick... Would you rather be a professional judo athlete, a business writer, or a CEO of a software company? Uh, judo athlete. Because it is... I really understand the... I think I understand the skill tree in judo more than most, and it is incredibly difficult. And I think unlike business where you can get good over the course of decades into your 60s, assuming that you don't um, calcify, you can get good at business over a long period of time. There's no sort of like time limit. But with judo, there really is a time limit and the time limit is your body, right? So if if I could today get that skill, right, with no cost, definitely a judo athlete because uh, it's a race against time before my body deteriorates. While we've been talking, I gave ChatGPT some of oh your God. answers and <laughs> got it to write a limerick of me. Sure, let's do it. So I'm going to read, read out the lyric. A fellow named Cedric, quite bold, finds Singaporean dishes like gold. In Vietnamese chaos, he'd revel his ambitions on another level, dreaming of judo metal. <laughs> so this is, this is something that will only be possible in a podcast exactly during this time. And you're probably going to date this podcast forever and ever because uh, it's, it's exactly at the moment where ChatGPT is good enough, which I think is only a span of a couple of months. <laughs> And obviously, during this this phase, like probably a couple of years from now, we'll be looking back and going like, "Oh, that's stupid! Like, thing is so lousy." You know, the AI has advanced so much. Like now, everybody has personal assistants. So, <laughs> <laughs> interestingly, on that note, right? Uh, when I recently, one of my a reader, uh, not 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 a paying member, but a reader, sort of emailed me and asked, like, "Are you still doing this business writing thing? Because GPT is here, AI is here, and it's gonna put you out of a job." And I was like. Bitch, please, like, an AI can't do experiments and suffer and they write about the experience. So, um, I think I think there's something there. I don't think AI is going to take over the world yet, and it sure as hell isn't going to take over Common Cog. That was really fun. But now let's get back to the show. I said it before and I'll say it again. Those two words, earned secrets, are so valuable and really mind-blowing to me and already makes this entire podcast worth it. Yay. But now let's peel back the layers a little bit and take a look at how you actually write these blog posts. Right. I want to know what your process is because as you've mentioned at the start, your your posts are really, really long <laughs> and while they are written in a reader-friendly way, they do tackle some pretty complicated topics. And so, you know, researching and figuring out how to write them in an accessible way can't be easy. And I'd love to learn a little bit more about, yeah, your process. 
One other thing I'd like to hear more about is, so our customers at Newsletter Glue are mainly publishers, media companies, newsrooms, um, you know, online magazines, and that's also our audience for Sticky. And they typically work on really tight deadlines, like that might be a daily newsletter or weekly or something in between. Um, and I know that you kind of straddle, you know, those two worlds because on one hand, you do spend months and months researching um, topics, but on the other hand, you somehow manage to produce articles and newsletters, I, I think, um, once a week or once every two weeks. So I kind of like to hear how you think about all of that and, you know, do the long form stuff that takes forever and also manage to get stuff out on a regular schedule. So one thing that I do have to point out is that uh, the overlap between my skill set and the journalist's skill set of meeting a deadline is actually quite large. So if you talk to any journalist who has done uh, who has done the job for any amount of time or any editor really, um, yep. they would say that writer's block is for amateurs, right? They, they are able mm. to, you need a piece by tomorrow, at this time, I'm going to hit it, right? And I don't care like what kind of work it does or whatever. They, they will hit it. They will hit it. This is a like sort of journalism skill 101 or journalism writing skill 101, right? Um, but uh, I, I bring this up because it's sort of easy to assume that uh, people who do deep research and put in a lot of effort to write a piece uh, can't also do incredibly fast bang out a piece to meet a deadline sort of thing. I am very much able to do that. Um, and I I like to believe, I don't know if this is true. Uh, in fact, you probably have to ask journalists to see if this is true, but this every journalist that I've talked to seems to t- tell me that this is true. Um, the people who do these deep investigative feature-length pieces are also writers who can do, you got a deadline tomorrow, I need to, you need a 1,500 word piece, done, right? Um, so it's not, it's, it's very much the ability to do these incredibly long pieces sits on a base level of ability to hit a deadline and to do it consistently. Um, now, with that said, my typical cadence is a week. Uh, recently, due to the number of experiments and the recovery from my uh, judo experiment, I have not been as consistent. Um, but I do set myself a time limit of a week, and this presents certain problems, right? Like Because certain pieces takes months to put into practice and to investigate. Some pieces require me to summarize a 5,000 page. Uh, it's a bit ridiculous. It's only I've only done it once, I think. Um, or like a really thick book. So this, I think, is like Making Sense of Data. It's an incredibly nerdy book. It is, so you can see, I don't know how many pages is it. It's like 366 pages and it's not easy. It's like there's math in it and stuff. Um, so that obviously takes a couple of months, or if not weeks, um, weeks if not months. And you have to, sorry, not 5,000 words, I shouldn't say that, but like a very thick book. 1,000 pages is, is uh, I have, I think, summarized or at least worked through a fair amount of a 1,000-page book, which I can't take because it's very heavy. It's above the computer right now. My point is that you, the way that I developed this is everything in my head is a bunch of questions. So there are a number of threads that I'm pulling on at any given point in time. Right now, I'm really interested in... Um, uh, the two big topics for the last four months, I think, has been deliberate practice, which I actually put to practice by doing this judo experiment, training five hours a day, every day. Um, and then the other sort of piece is how do you become data-driven? And that one was, that one emerged from working with Colin Bryant and Bill Carr, who were Amazon Amazonian executives very early on in Amazon's history. And I did a project for them, a consulting project, to help explicate their, 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 their approach to uh, metrics, which is called the Amazon Weekly Business Review, right, for their consulting practice. And I turned that into a bunch of tutorials that they're going to disseminate to their clients. Um, and that started me down a path of like, how do you actually become data-driven? And I pretty much accepted that consulting project because I wanted to learn to become data-driven. Now, these questions lead off in multiple directions. And how I explore these questions tends to be a bit more playful and free-flowing, free, free um, sometimes it requires me to dig deep into the math of a particular technique. Sometimes it requires me to go and get a bunch of case studies. And so the way I sort of arrange it is like if a piece takes a bit more work, I tend to do work on it 
on the side. And this is thinking work, not writing work, right? I need to sort of figure out really what the ideas I need to get down before I start writing. Um, and in and, and usually the investigation process produces breadcrumbs, which I can turn into shorter pieces that are easier to write, which take only a day or two to write. Um, and that's basically the process. So this is not at all obvious from the publication. Uh, if you read Common Cog regularly, um, everything seems to be high quality. Uh, but what they don't see is that behind the scenes, I have like a mental map in my head of I'm digging into this vein, this this aspect of business and there will be certain ideas that come out that are actually easier to write about and I will publish them first and in the process I will do the thinking work necessary for those more difficult pieces. Um, so that's basically it and I basically have a whole bunch of questions that I want to ask and want to find answers to at any given time and sometimes I cannot predict when the answer or a rich vein falls into my lap. But then I have learned to recognize when a rich vein exists and then start going really deep into it, right? Um, and I guess it's very much true. I, I've heard somebody say this. I think it was uh, Daniel Ek of Spotify. So sort of said that the best creators follow their own curiosity. And this is very much what I've been doing and what drives me and why it's possible to keep writing stuff uh, and you know go deep into multiple rabbit holes. That's really interesting. So what you're really saying is that instead of writing one blog post per topic, you actually kind of allow yourself to stumble upon a topic and explore it for months and months. And as you go down this path of exploration, you might find low-hanging fruit and you write multiple blog articles um, from these low-hanging fruit. And as you go deeper, your articles typically tend to get longer and at some point it runs its course or you find a new topic to write about or sometimes you have multiple topics in parallel and um, all of those things combined is what gives you all your ideas for writing. That's really, really cool. Okay, so I'm going to ask you a question which is my favourite question that you have asked on your podcast, <laughs> which is... <laughs> I think you know where this is going. Yes, um, I do. What would a beginner get wrong when it comes to writing thought leadership articles? They will conflate quality. In order to write high quality pieces, you need to spend more time and output less of them. Um, this is true for expert writers. So like you, we all probably know, at least I do, New Yorker writers who spends like, there are New, New Yorker writers who spend like up to three years on a piece. That's how ridiculous some of them can get. It's common for them to spend multiple months on a piece investigating, going down, interviewing people. Um, in fact, I think my favorite example of this is John McPhee. He had an original piece in The New Yorker about oranges and he took a couple of months, I think an entire summer, just going to Florida and talking to various orange people and then writing the piece. <laughs> right? And later he turned that into a book called Oranges, which is one of my favorite books about fruit. Actually, probably the only favorite book that I have about fruit. Um, <laughs> but people think, you know, a novice will come in and think like, oh, you know, these people, they spend a huge amount of effort. Cedric spends a huge amount of effort digging into like some of these pieces. Uh, some of these pieces represent a year of thinking, right? And therefore, I need to spend a year thinking, you know, to write these quality pieces. No, 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 no. Like if you're in a beginner, you need to, you need to produce a huge amount. Um, you need to set yourself a deadline. You need to be consistent and you need to produce a set amount and I tend to recommend writers who are new to do one piece a day for 30 days. I did this when I was very, very oh, young. Wow. Uh, like I think I was 17 years old. And it's the equivalent of like the sports context where you bench press a weight that is much, much higher than anything you ever face in the sport, right? But you have to do that because in the sport, you, you, you want to have that excess capacity. So once you're able to write a piece a day for 30 days, everything, every deadline will be like, oh, this is easy. I've done it before, right? I've done mm. 30... Uh, uh, a piece of day every day for 30 days and I and I, I prove to myself that I can do it and so therefore like if you have a deadline for this long 1,500 words by tomorrow sure I can do it fine alright um, people think that quantity is not does not map to quality but really good writers are able to produce reasonably high quality content at a very high rate um, and it's not separate and you should aim for quantity first quantity is a quality of its own so that's I think the number one one What's the next? What's the next thing that novices will get wrong? I think a lot of novices um, 
I keep telling novice writers to just go to the Pointer website and look up a, a, a book. Buy, it's, 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 you can either buy the book or you can sign up for the course. The course is free and contains the exact same content as the book. It's called 50 Writing Tools. And I, I, I tell them that uh, every time like somebody asks me for writing advice that you should just take that course when I was uh, when I was 18, 19, it was a series of free articles on the pointer.org website before they took it down and turned it into a book and now a gated course. But you just take that and then during the one piece a day for 30 days sort of thing, you just implement each of these tools, right? Put them to practice. Right. And and nobody seems to listen to this, right? Because the, the, the secret is um, if you want your writing to be possible, there are lots of little tricks that journalists know that don't that they don't teach in typical schools for writing class writing classes in schools and once you and these tools are really easy they're like very sentence length or beware word uh space like you cannot repeat the same word too close to each other or when you're describing something with high emotional impact pare down your vocabulary to use simpler words because the impact mm -hmm. is larger these are things that I've internalized so deeply because I did. I went through the pointer fifty writing tools thing, and people don't seem to do that. And it's so easy. It's like literally, it will take you a month, and you change your writing forever, right? Like, like if you do it in doing the same time of the one piece a day for thirty days, sort of thing, a month, maybe two months, and then these tools become part part of you, and then it's forever. And you need to have like that base level of uh, writing capability in order to do well on the internet as a writer. Mm. Um, and it's it's worth putting in the two months that's going to benefit you for the rest of your life, right? I think, in my opinion, for at sure. least, if you try to do yeah. writing. Um, so so that's another piece that I get slightly irritated by because when you want to produce good writing, like, at some point, your writing skill becomes good enough that your writing is okay. Um, and then mm -hmm. at which point, you it becomes, the, the bottleneck really becomes your thinking ability. And there is this, thing that I believe which is like don't make the easy things hard it's not that difficult to get to a base level of writing ability to achieve your goals for the internet or for publishing on the internet right so don't make it hard just get to that level so that you can focus on the really hard thing which is the quality of your thinking and at some point uh, that will be the bottleneck if you are serious about the whole publishing uh, writing sort of thing I guess it's a bit unusual for me to talk about writing skill in this particular context but don't make the easy thing hard writing is easy should be easy and if you you want to get at the hard things <laughs> I, I guess which is like going viral or executing your content marketing strategy if you're a SaaS or um, picking topics that matter that are high value that's actually really really hard it was such good advice all right let's wrap things up with a segment called quick recs Okay. where I'll, I'd love to <laughs> ask you three questions um, and get your recommendations on them. So the first question is, what's one underrated email tool that you wish people knew and talked more about? Ooh. I don't think it's underrated because I think at this point, many people uh, have used it. But ConvertKit, I really like ConvertKit. Or rather, I like any tool that has lots of automations. And ConvertKit, I think, is mm. currently one of the best at doing these incredibly complex automations. Um, it's my recommended email tool primarily because of the degree of segmentation and uh, automations that you can build inside the tool. And it's relatively easy to wrap your head around, I think. Nice. What's one favorite... Oh, what's your favorite must-subscribe, must-read newsletter? Ooh. So, uh, this is a bit unfair. I love Matt Levine's money stuff because he's incredibly hilarious <laughs> and he's very prolific. Um, the problem is that uh, he is too prolific and I have stopped subscribing to him recently because I just couldn't take it. Because he's such a good writer that I, I feel compelled to read every single newsletter he sends. Um... But then, and I recommend it a lot. Like as he's like a writer's writer. He's like a newsletter writer's newsletter writer, <laughs> <laughs> and it's so good. But it's too much. It's too much. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, and I think we covered this already. But in case you have something different, what's one um, piece of advice for newsletter writers? Oh, uh, be consistent. Uh, stick to a schedule and publish it. And 
it's basically a variant of quantity is a quality of its own. Like it's, but I think it's more important for newsletter publishers because for things like podcasts and blog posts and uh, definitely newsletter publishing, cadence, consistency, and frequency really matter. All right, and we are done. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Cedric. This was really, really fun. I personally learned a lot and I'm going to try to see how we, we can add your thinking on um, thought leadership and earn secrets into the podcast. And I'm sure it's going to make, cool. make for a much better podcast as well. I'm very happy to hear that uh, I've helped. Um, and this was very fun. Thank you very much. <laughs>